Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd, and welcome back to The Competitive Edge. Today we have an extra edge. You might recall that last week we turned to crime. Kate Morgan SC gave us the lowdown on Australia's first ever criminal cartel jury trial, the Country Care case. We heard about the charges, the evidence and the tactics when suppliers of home care goods like wheelchairs came together in a joint bid to supply the Department of Veterans Affairs and found themselves on the wrong end of an attempted price-fixing charge. Well, today we have the big questions. What happened when the verdicts came in? What does it mean for the ACCC's pipeline of investigations? And the big one, why are jury trials like playing Germany at the World Cup? I'm thrilled to welcome back Kate Morgan. Kate, I want to take you to this thorny question of markets. The markets alleged by the ACCC were retail, right? In other words, that they tried to fix prices to the general public. They identified the top selling items and they tried to show that the country care members competed against each other to sell those wheelchairs and so on. They sent out flyers, they advertised online. How did you approach the markets question? How we approached it was at a higher level of the market. So we had the witnesses talk about the levels of service they provided, having to customise even the most simple products. We had a demonstration. Dean Jordan took one of the witnesses through the nine products. So we tended the nine products. Sorry, not we. The second accused <laughs> tended the nine products. He had one of the members in front of the jury fiddling with all the products. So even over toilet seat or frame, you would think it's pretty standard he was able to describe in a way which showed it wasn't standard. And in fact, the best thing is to come into the store, talk to someone, make sure it's the right thing. So obviously all of that is important for a consumer and particularly their family to make sure it's the right piece of equipment. There was a lot of evidence from a lot of the members talking about interacting with consumers and their families at this moment in their life, that they were either disabled from an accident or aging and for people to confront that and for their families to be brought along on that journey was a really important matter. And we had witness after witness talking about that. And that resonated with quite a few members of the jury, that definitely in terms of the age differential in the jury and gender, there were definitely certain members of the jury very engaged in the complexities of the market that you wouldn't have expected and the importance of empathy and consideration, which you don't get by sending out a flyer and selling things online. So even in the age of COVID, when everybody was madly shopping online, these products were things that were much more human, much much more bespoke, I suppose, making sure you'd bought the right one and that it was right for your ageing parent or Correct. your disabled relative to use so that they would feel comfortable in it and feel confident in their living arrangements. I mean, these are very human stories. And I think anyone who's got an aging relative or dealt with a person who's differently abled would resonate with that. Yes. I think that it was a crucial part of our case, definitely. Whereas I think the prosecution adopted it as we do when we first see it, which is, oh, well, online, I can buy that online. I'll check the prices. What was really interesting is how few of the members advertised prices online because of the service element. They didn't want people buying it online. They didn't want to sell in that way. They want people to come into the store. They want to make sure it fits. So it was a price fixing case brought 
about products that were not really sold on price. That's our case. (laughs) Yes, and herein we come to the, the dilemma of this particular case and the feeling having been involved with it for a very long time, but in in particular through the trial, the sensation of a case that changed quite fundamentally several times, certainly from my perspective, without enough thought being given into two things. One, is this really the harm we thought we were investigating? So originally, and in fact, Mr. Sims said this in his original press release, we alleged prices in relation to the DVA, like he was talking about the DVA, but that was not the case that was run. The case that was run was an attempt and it was about prices to the general public. So the case changed without necessarily thought being given to was that harm the kind of harm the criminal law should be regulating? And the second thing was, have we prepared this case to prove beyond reasonable doubt each of the elements of this new case? Or are we thinking it seems pretty straightforward and a jury understands basic ideas of competition and we don't need to delve into the level of detail we would in a civil prosecution where we're up against multinationals and a sophisticated judge? Fascinating. Well, now I want to hear how it ended. I mean, I know how it ended, but I want (laughs) to hear from you how it ended. Well. The lead up to verdict day, to put verdict day into context, was the evidence finished many, many weeks before. And then we had many days of inverted commas discussion about the directions. So although we had told the judge over many years how complicated this case was, he had been the director of public prosecutions himself and obviously had been in some very complicated cases and had said that to us, and he didn't think that this was any more complicated. I think by the end he accepted it was, and so he had not anticipated the work that would be involved in drafting, in particular, the competition directions. So that took many days of argument. Because that's economic theory. It's like, well, what market are you talking about? What's the effect in the market? Exactly. It was the, The directions are crazy town. So then the prosecutor had to address, and he addressed for three and a half days, and We started then having jury issues and then I addressed for a couple of days and then we had many jury issues. We had a big break, three or four days break. And then the second accused addressed for a day and a bit and the third accused for half a day or so. So we all finished and the judge then felt he needed extra time and then he started summing up on Monday. He had hoped to do it in one day not even close. So he summed up over two days. He then told the jury on the Tuesday afternoon at 4.30, they come back in the next morning and they would start deliberating at 10. At about quarter to two, we got the message that there were verdicts, eight verdicts. So I could hardly type SMSs to I was just purchasing my flight back to Sydney because I decided if they were in for the long haul, I had to come back and I would miss the verdict. I was just about to press purchase when um, my solicitor told me that the verdicts were in. And so then it was about an hour before. So, so just let me pause you there. What did you think the verdict was going to be? When it's so I fast, usually I, there's an expectation. Of right? course, in hindsight, I'm happy to say, of course it was not guilty. Of course it was a quit. 
but you just actually don't let yourself think. You just don't. Because it's not over till it's over. You just can't. Because you could have had anyone in there every afternoon saying, nah, 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 evil, evil, evil. He was trying to price fix. He was bid rigging. You just don't know. This is a bit like the old saying that, you know, when you're playing against Germany in the World Cup, you haven't won until their buses left the stadium. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't heard that, but I'm going to adopt it. I like that. So I did not let myself think. We were the first ones in because we were in court. We were there. We were rogue within about 10 minutes. Um, And the prosecutors came wandering in one by one. They were obviously not being together at the time. And the judge then took quite some time to come in, which was really tough. So I was entertaining everybody with videos of my dog singing to my son's violin, trying to distract everyone. Anyway, so you're sitting there, they come in and you don't want to look at them but you can't help it and you try reading into them. But hang on, isn't the theory that if they look the defendants in the eye, then they're going to acquit? Correct. If they look at the ceiling or the floor, then you better pack your toothbrush. They were looking at the at the floor Ooh. from what I could take. Oof, okay. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was convincing myself of the worst so that I didn't let myself think the positive. And then the person stands up and she's read out the first charge and she said, not guilty. And then there was just this kind of various sobs in the courtroom from various people, including myself, I'm sure, because all of that, you know, that 12 weeks plus of anxiety and hard work. Well, five years, really. Five years and however millions of dollars. And once, because although the first offence, Mr. Hogan was exactly the same offence and Mr. Harrison was eight and a bit, unlike four and five and six and seven and eight, the first offence pretty much as long as I was not guilty, everyone else would be not guilty. And similarly for charge four, once I was not guilty because Mr. Hogan was aid and abet, he couldn't be found guilty. And once I was not guilty for charge six, the other two were aid and abet, so they had to also be found not guilty. So that was a relief. So what are your thoughts on the implications of all this? Well, I think from the factual scenario I've given you, it's pretty clear that on these facts, it was going to be a difficult case for the ACCC. And sorry, I should say the prosecution as developed by the ACCC. So I can see why the ACCC would look at what's happened in this particular case and be able to say that shouldn't affect future cases. But I do think the arguments and submissions on the competition directions and the result from the judge on those competition directions should give everyone pause for thought. My very strong belief is that a jury cannot be expected to understand these provisions and that a conviction with these provisions from a policy point of view would be unfair. So You say, I think you've been very articulate in this discussion, that you think the case was not rigorously enough thought through to be brought. It wasn't a strong enough case to be brought. And and that is on the facts of this, this case specifically. But I think you're now also saying that more broadly, the idea of these kinds of cases are something we should be skeptical about because bringing cases of this complexity before a jury is sort of full of jeopardy. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. That's right. And it's not to say that there isn't 
criminal cartel conduct. I think we all, as you said, the smoky rooms or meeting in the, the park, there, there is cartel conduct that could be identified as appropriately criminal. The problem is our provisions are so complex that the way someone would be convicted is not because a jury can understand them and be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. It's because the case theory is presented in a way that they accept the prosecution's position without necessarily engaging in the analysis that at the moment the law expects them to. So in other words, you find it hard to believe that 12 average citizens of ordinary levels of education and ordinary levels of familiarity with the concepts of market economics and law could work their way through all of that detail and arrive safely on the other side. You think that if they get to the other side, there would have to be hops, skips and jumps that would make a verdict unsafe. Exactly. What about the impact on the defendants themselves? They were tied up with this for a long time. It's so upsetting. My own client, you know, I'm the company obviously, but Mr Hogan was behind that. That's five years of his life and millions of dollars and five years where he could not invest in his own company to be competitive in this area. So other entities have been able to progress in the interim and he hasn't because his cash flow has been tied up with this case. And Cameron Harrison, the third accused, his life has been on hold for five years while this is sorted out. I mean, his name, we would go weeks and his name wouldn't be mentioned. Weeks. And he had to sit there every day with his dad and with his partner. Just extraordinary. I didn't even act for him and I'm getting teary. It, it is, uh, you know, criminal law has a way of focusing the mind though, right? So I guess when these provisions were brought in, people thought that if, you know, corporate wrongdoers, people who are directors of corporate entities that are doing wrong, it really does focus the minds in the boardroom and at senior levels of management. If you think you're looking at a criminal conviction and a jail term, it's more than just a, a fine, even if the fines are large. So do you have thoughts at, at a policy level as to how you would approach this area of law from a policy perspective in a way that doesn't expose people to the kind of jeopardy that you've described with Hogan and, and Harrison, and yet nonetheless focuses their minds sufficiently to ensure that Australians are protected from criminal cartel behaviour or cartel behaviour? There's so much consideration, sorry, so much consideration has been given to this. And so mine is only one opinion of many that are out there. But, but, but just let me pause you there. You've been a, a long-time critic of the idea of these provisions, so we can go back years yes. and find, uh, uh, find <laughs> your thoughts on these matters. And you've I feel been also, <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm sure you do because you've, yeah. you've not just sat through this trial, you've been a oh. key actor and uh, an yeah. advocate at, at counsel in this trial, so you've watched this all happen. The three hour, can I say the three hours I felt as vindication that no jury wants to think about this. And if they don't want to think about it, we shouldn't be asking them to because then we will get unsafe verdicts. I think that's my end point from our trial. In terms of general deterrence, I think it's pretty, the common view is it's been 
a general deterrent for 10 years, but now they've lost pretty badly. So general deterrence only works until you lose. And they lost their first one against a medium-sized business in Mildura. So if they can't get their case organised in that context, I'm not sure what general deterrence will have on more sophisticated market participants. Well, it's interesting because Rod Sims has made some public comments on this and he's indicated in an MLEX interview that there's no way that country care can be considered a significant blow to the ACCC's enforcement campaign. I'm reading their story now. Quote, we just completely reject that, he says. It is the way these things are often written up and I just reject that. And he points to the conviction rate that we have in Australia around enforcement sorry, 85% of our cases, which I guess includes civil cases. He says that uh, the ACCC win. Tell me a country that's got enforcement like that, he says. And he does not seem to be taking a backward step around these criminal cartel probes. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, he, he, I mean, he has to support the legislation that he enforces. So I understand why he's making those comments. I would hope that he would be interested in hearing from the perspectives of those who ran the case against the Commonwealth DPP. And I would be hoping that he's talked to the HCC who sat there every single day in the back row watching the trial and get their thoughts about what worked, what didn't work. Looking back over this particular prosecution, were there things they could have done differently that might have been more fair, that would have pursued what the legislation was for, maybe? Uh, look, it's this legislation that's the problem, not the concept of criminalising some cartel behaviour. I think that's ultimately the issue. When it gets referred to the Commonwealth DPP, it has to be serious. Like that's part of what the deal is between the two organisations, the MOU. And the idea that country care in the version that went to the jury qualified as serious cartel behaviour is close to absurd. But I don't think anyone ever thought about that after the charges were laid as they changed the case. Well, Mr Sims, if you're listening, you <laughs> have the input from, from senior counsel and we would welcome he you. He knows my number. <laughs> we would welcome you on the podcast to discuss it more broadly if you'd like to do that. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to get your insights from courtside, if you like. I feel like we're creating a new genre of legal reporting here. It's the it's the sideline scoop that we've we've had from your 12-week adventure in Melbourne with the first ever jury-tried criminal cartel case in Australia. So thank you very much for joining us and we will perhaps be seeing you back in action soon. Uh, we're told there's five or six other yep, cartel investigations in mm. the pipeline, some of which will be criminal cartels, the ACCC has said. So we could be seeing Kate Morgan back in action soon. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. So there you have it, the inside view of Australia's first criminal cartel trial by jury. Thanks for joining me. Plenty more episodes coming up. We've got the Ports case the competition issues that arise when assets get privatised. We've got artificial intelligence, 
You might think that regulating new technology is a bit of an old story, but is this one really different? Hmm, might have to ask a robot that one. And get your flares out for this one, hipster antitrust. Is it coming into fashion? Hit subscribe and tell your friends. Don't miss The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.